Let's talk about microdosing. You know that feeling when your body and mind are really at peace, like after a workout or a nice long shower, where you've relaxed, you're focused, and a little energized? It feels just right, like you're in the zone. Well, microdose can help you not only get into that zone easier, but stay there longer. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. I absolutely love how helpful these gummies are. For me, half a microdose gummy during the day helps me really stay centered and really fresh as I get everything done on my list. And they really help me relax in the evenings as well and just be present and in the moment instead of worrying about things from the day or what I have to do tomorrow. Get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code MinaAF. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code MinaAF for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code MinaAF. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Mina Starziak-Hawk and this is Mina AF, where I answer all of your questions and you can ask me anything. Can we talk about money? Can you still breastfeed with implants? You're both boss moms, and I'd love to know the story of how you met. Literally anything any of you want to hear. Listen as we build a community and get to know each other better. Hey guys, happy Tuesday. We all made it through another Monday. On today's episode, we are joined by the lovely Dr. Peter Colts. We actually had a message in the mailbox from Jody, so we're going to get straight into that. But I'm also joined by my husband, Steve. Hello. Hey there, Steve. And we'll also chat a bit about penile implants, different procedures, marketing tricks that doctors do, and let's just go right ahead and get into it. I'd like to hear a little something about breast implant illness. Okay, so to kick off the conversation, what is breast implant illness, like in a nutshell? The easy in a nutshell, which it's not easy, but it, I would say if you have to nail something down, the, the definition would be any uh, illness that you have that you believe is related to your breast implants. So very generic in that there's a constellation of symptoms. It could be lots of random things and someone who has breast implants and you believe that they're related to your implants. And what are the actual factual findings? Because look, I started doing research and I am convinced that I have breast plant illness. I'm not even kidding you. Like all the symptoms I have, like swelling in my hands, various mm-hmm. parts of my body, lots of inflammation. I mean, the symptoms are so vague. So I guess talk a little bit more about what symptoms could be actually breast plant illness, but also could be like 5 million other things. Yeah. So, I mean, the common things that people will relate to uh, breast implant illness is memory loss, fatigue, um, hair loss, uh, weight gain, uh, generalized swelling. I mean, those I see or talk to virtually probably one to five patients a week with breast implants that carry those symptoms that have seen multiple other doctors, plastic surgeons or otherwise, that then have other diagnosis ruled out or they haven't and they think that they're related to their implants. But those are the kind of the big ones. And I would say commonly also anxiety and depression. So a lot of 
also common problems. Those would be, you know, the things that people present with and say, hey, you know, are these related to my implants? I want them removed because they could be related to my implants. And then, you know, we have a discussion about what that looks like. So an important, I think, practice in medicine and certainly for patients seeking anything is to try to do things by what Steve's doing, which is evidence basis. Like you want to read about it. Don't just take some Yahoo or your friend's advice on something. Do it based on, you know, big studies, big numbers of patients and, um, you know, what studies exist. Are they good studies, not message boards? Like that's the best way to kind of focus. So are there good studies? Are there certain things that are easy to administer? Like studies that involve mice, studies that like you're doing placebo, a double blind, things like that. It's hard to do that with breast implants, right? Uh, it is. So I'll give you, I guess, you know, one useful study that, um, you know, so there's two people really on the, on the scientific forefront uh, and the plastic surgery forefront of this process we're talking about, which is breast implant illness, but also going along with that is ALCL, which is a type of lymphoma that's related to only breast implants. And then there's something called breast implant associated squamous cell carcinoma. So there's a doctor by the name of Dr. Glicksman and a guy by the name of uh, Dr. McCatton. But one, um, so those, those two doctors use large studies and have done double-blinded studies and have done every level of evidence. Define large, 5,000 cases, more than that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, hundreds, so different depending on if it's basic science and or if it's, or if it's patients, like clinical studies, because there's a number of questions to answer here, right? So one of them would be, if you thought about um, you know, people that have these symptoms, and if you then took their implants out, what happens to them, right? You'd want to know, do they get better? That'd be, an, that'd be a logical question. There's another, the other question that would be reasonable to ask and answer would be, you know, what happens to like, like from a um, immunohistochemistry, like the blood, their blood studies. If you looked at in these patients' blood, what types of circulating factors are there that might be related to something related to their implants? So that's a reasonable question. So like, is there something because of their implants that's circulating in their body that could be making them ill? And then the next question would be, well, do people that don't have breast implants that have any kind of breast surgery or any kind of, let's say, cosmetic surgery, do they get the same symptoms in the same frequency with no breast implants? So it's just agitating the body really in any way, not specifically with the breast implant, right? Right. So, so those... Three kind of questions are what I focused on when I, you know, I, what I focus on, what I keep up, keep up to date on the literature on because it's, it's always evolving. So, but those three things are important to me. So if we kind of think about each one of those one at a time, I think that will help um, focus, you know, your, your listeners attention to what the, what the data is. So the first, you know, and I'm happy to kind of march through these however you want, but those are key, be kind of how I would focus my thoughts, which would be. Well, what happens if I have these symptoms that you pointed out that are really broad? So brain fog, weight gain, weight loss, you know, I just don't feel like myself, my patient, my hair is falling out, my vision's changing. 
like lots of things. Those things could all be related to lots of things. It could be like PCOS or 5 million other things. It's usually thyroid problems. It's, you know, some sort of rheumatologic condition. There's a million things that can go with any one of those. Um, And I'm being dramatic, but there's several things that can go with any one of those that you should rule out because if you don't, I mean, if you don't want your implants, then take your implants out. Don't say that it's related. These problems are related to your implants, but it'd be better if you didn't have these symptoms that you feel like you have and you treat the underlying problem of that so you can keep your breasts. I feel like what I was feeling, I was listening to a podcast, I was doing some research and it triggered two things in me. One, like a very fear-based reaction. And then two was, oh, well, that's an easy fix. Then you just get them taken out. No, no big deal. And I think, as you know, human nature, we're not looking for the problem where you have to change your diet or take supplements or whatever to fix the problem. So those are the two immediate things that I thought about. And I think the biggest one that was fear-based was the doctor was saying that breast implant illness can be related to fertility issues. And that is such a big struggle for so many women. If a doctor was like, hey, you might have breast plant illness, you should get them out and then you'll get pregnant. Like, everyone in the world be running to you to get their implants out because they're struggling with fertility. Yeah. I mean, again, fertility is so multifactorial. People can't get pregnant sometimes because of PCOS, as you talked about, which can go with other symptoms as well. People have anxiety, depression. You know, you hear about people all the time that get pregnant only after they stop trying to get pregnant because they put all that pressure on themselves, which has nothing to do with breast implants. Um, you know, the, the big thing is like chicken before the egg, like what's, what's the problem, what happens first in all of these conditions. So one of, you know, the last thing about number four, I guess that I kind of talked about before I think about what happens if you take your implants out and those symptoms don't go away, then what? And cause now you're left with your breasts looking in a way that probably don't look even as good as they did the day your implants went in. And now you developed a whole other set of problems, which usually result to confidence, anxiety, depression related to how you look. So like you have to take all that into consideration, then make a decision. So, you know, I think the, the, the biggest thing first and foremost is like, if you have these symptoms, what ones can you expect symptoms to go away if you remove your implants? So there's been a variety of large studies that, that look at all women who have explant surgery that have breast implant associated illness going in and they take their implants out. Uh, and then some, some take their capsules out, some don't, but we can come back to that. If you remove implants and or remove capsules, do your symptoms go away? And so the answer is they do go away. Um, a significant number of your symptoms will go away. And by significant, I mean 40 to 65%, depending on what you read. And most of these women have multiple symptoms, right? So that means some of their symptoms will go away and some won't. And the question is, which ones go away? And is that enough for you. The ones that go away with the most common frequency are things like anxiety. Some people will say that their swelling goes down. Um, The things that don't are like vision changes, hair loss, weight loss, weight gain. Um, Those reliably won't go away. It seems like the latter is more concrete, whereas anxiety is a very subjective thing based on the person, right? Right. And depression sometimes goes along with anxiety. So um, you know, again, those things can happen one way or the other, but it doesn't matter, right? If, if whatever the thing is that's bothering you, you, you eliminate that problem and it fixes your symptoms, then great. Then we fixed your, we fixed your problem. But then if you look at the same symptoms, and this gets to kind of my second point, the same symptoms in women who don't have breast implants and that have cosmetic mastopexy, just a breast lift without an implant. 
they have the same frequency of symptoms as women have with implant-associated illness going into you know, their explant surgery. Is it whether or not they do the fat transfer with yeah, the lift? Yeah, just yeah. no implants. So some had some had fat, some didn't. But that gets the, the, the point is it has nothing to do with the implant. It could just be, you know, the patient population having breast surgery, um, you know, but importantly, it's not something related to the implant. So it's, it's can be confusing, right? I mean, there's, it can be many factors. It could be related to the implant or not, but if the same symptoms happen when women who don't have implants, then how do you relate it to the implants? <laughs> it wasn't anything that, you know, even crossed my mind before I got implants, but let's say you have a patient and they come to you, they're thinking about implants, they're thinking about, you know, implant versus fat transfer, but they have this fear level because they heard the podcast that I heard or whatever it is. Is there a way to prevent that from possibly happening or is there like a series of blood tests or any tests that you could do to see if someone might be prone to developing breast implant illness? Um, the short answer is no. I mean, there's since it's not a concrete thing with a you know defined set of problems and parameters and anatomic um, or physiologic basis, um, there's no way to test for it. Your, your other question is a great one because what I tell patients that come to me with breast implant illness is the most frequent thing that people realize also, aside from like the kind of subjective things, is they frequently will have some sort of underlying discomfort with their breasts, um, meaning that the breast is a little hard, it's a little misshapen, um, they get periodic inflammation or swelling of their breasts. And the most common reason that happens is something is something called capsular contracture. So what I tell patients is capsular contractures, you know, happens 1% of the time per year in all comers for breast implants. So that means too much scar tissue forms around your implants. That can be because you just formed too much scar tissue, or it could be because something was on your breast implant when it went into your body, that your body is constantly kind of trying to fight off or irritating it. Um, and so that's the part we can do like either bacteria. So like there's, there's bacteria all over your skin. And so, and, I, and not your skin, Mina, everyone's skin. <laughs> and so, so when you put, when you put an implant in through a place where theoretically you could get, you know, any bacteria that's still there after our prep for surgery, that could go into your body. And it could be just in low enough quantities that your body keeps it at bay all the time, but you're always kind of trying to fight it off. And that presents itself commonly with too much scar tissue or too much capsule around your implant, which makes it feel hard or like your body's kind of at a constant state of inflammation. And the capsule is, when you say that, are you talking about the space you create for the implant that kind of holds the implant where it should go? Well, we, cre we create the space, the implant goes in, and then your body creates a capsule to keep it where we put it. So it forms like Think about it's scar tissue or any any implant that goes into your body, whether it's a knee arthroplasty or a breast implant or an implant in your in your skull. Your body walls it off and forms scar tissue around it, just so it doesn't see it anymore and it stays where it is. So my brain just jumped to because I have questions about the scar tissue and the body forming, and I can't remember the name of this thing I'm thinking about. But it's what people have. I see it all the time on Dr. Pimple Popper. And it's where you have any kind of damage to the body, whether it's a cut or a piercing got infected, where you like massively overproduce scar tissue outside of your body. Is it the same way inside your body? Like that same person would be prone to some like wild capsule scarring? Yeah. So there's 
what you're talking about is two different things. There's one thing called hypertrophic scar, which means your body makes too much scar, but it stays right where that scar is. And there's something called keloid scarring. Keloid scarring is like a tumor of scar tissue and you like hyperproduce too much of it. Right. Okay. So similar, but different. I mean, I guess you could think of the capsule being um, too much, kind of like a hypertrophic scar, meaning it's just, it turns into almost like a leather, like a thick scar. Um, and I guess the point with, in related to breast implant illness is that it could be that there's some imperfection on the implant when it goes in. And so that happens from, like we said, with skin potential contact, you know, maybe some surgeons don't change their gloves before they put their implant or they handle the implant. They don't use a funnel. Sometimes putting an implant through the nipple can, that's how I see it most commonly from other surgeons. They put implants through the nipple and that leads to higher rates of capsular contracture because- Do you not put them through the nipple? Like what's the reason for that? I don't. If you go, so the, if you look at the, look at a breast, the nipple where the exit of the nipple connects to the glands inside your breast gland, this bacteria on your skin crawls into your nipple ducts. So you, your breast is not a sterile environment. So if you cut through the breast tissue to get your implants underneath the breast, which is where it goes, then you shower your implant with bacteria as it goes in and you make too much scar tissue as a result, or you get a frank infection. And that doesn't happen if you go through like where I did. Yep. So I, I go typically through the bra line. So like a, a, a bra line crease incision. Um, and that's the cleanest area because you never actually have to touch any breast tissue. You go underneath it. So um, that's one of the reasons. But, but if you think going back to breast implant illness, if you think that there's something on your implant, your body's fighting it off and theoretically you make too much capsule, too much scar, or you're in generally inflamed because of that insult on the implant, that could lead to symptoms that mirror or are consistent with breast implant illness. They, your breast implants feel hard. You feel like you're inflamed all the time. So the conversation I always have is, you know, you, what you're describing could be a, like a capsular contracture. The treatment for that is not take them out and leave them out, although you can do that. The treatment is take all your implant, your capsule out, and you can put a new one in if you want, or you can do a lift, or you can do fat transfer, but you're just to treat the problem. So the problem is something on your implant. And and the data would, would support everything I'm saying in the sense that it doesn't may, mean if you take your implants out, you're going to get better, and doesn't mean that if you put one in, you're going to get worse symptoms, or you're going to get them all back again. So sometimes it's just sorting out what you're willing to go through to get what you want from a cosmetic standpoint. And most women that are in this position are like, Hey, I'm at my wits end. just take them out. We'll figure out what goes away. And then I'll come back another day and figure out what to do. How often do you see that? Like women are just like, take them out. I don't care. Just take them out. I probably see that once every other week that we come to that conclusion, meaning like a lot, I say one to five times a week, I'll have a conversation like this, but coming to the conclusion, like they've served their purpose. I don't care. I don't want them anymore is probably like a once every other week, once every third week type of conversation. Yeah. That's a lot higher than I was anticipating. Yeah. But that's not, but that's not because of breast implant illness. That's because people like, you know, you're 60, you feel like you look too matronly now and like you're, you're too full. You now you have, you've gained weight. Okay. So you're saying people period get their implants taken out that often. Period. That makes sense. In my practice, there's some practices in across the country that they do a hundred percent breast implant illness surgery. Like that's all they do every day. They people fly there to get their implants out because they think they do something different when they're removing their implants. So I mean, so it's just different depending on the practice. 
warmer, sunnier days are calling and you can fuel up for them with Factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. With delicious options from breakfast to dessert, you can stay fueled all day long with easy and nutritious options. Plus, with premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, Factor meals are a real treat. I love the convenience and the variation of Factor's different meal preferences. Whether it's managing calories, maximizing protein, or avoiding meat, crush your goals this May with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash MinaAF50 and use code MinaAF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code MinaAF50 at factormeals.com slash MinaAF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have different stressors, some big, some small, that we carry around and that really weigh us down. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to have a negative effect on us. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. For me, therapy has been so helpful, really learning those positive coping skills and to be the best version of myself. I know myself better and how to set the right boundaries that really work for me. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, then give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, and it's entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MinaAF today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MinaAF. So any good doctor would have like a checklist, right? So someone comes in and they're like, I've got these symptoms, right? So I would presume that your checklist is like, okay, how often are you exercising? What does your diet look like? How do you sleep? Things like that. Is that stuff that you go over with them? I wouldn't say it's as checklisted because in, in our in our field, it's like you have to be very you know cautious of people's emotions going into this. And ultimately, and everyone everyone's different. Every plastic surgeon is different who's going to see a patient like this. What I want to believe or what I want to understand is how how convinced is somebody that their problems are related to their implants? If they're truly there and they're think, trying to gather factual information, we'll have a factual conversation. Some people come in guns blazing and they're, and they're like, I don't care. I have breast implant illness. All of my symptoms are related to my illness. I'll simply say, you know, maybe, maybe not. But if you want your implants out, let's just take them out so we can, you know, because there's no reason to argue with those types of people. Well, the body and the brain are connected, right? So your brain is convinced it's something with your breasts. I mean, that's why placebo is real, right? Because you're ultimately telling your brain it's what you perceive and the body and the brain are connected. 
So that makes sense. A hundred percent. And so there, you know, a lot of, a lot of people argue that point, like, Hey, you don't have breast implant illness. Breast implant illness is not a real thing. Like you breast implant illness is a real thing. I mean, if you believe you have it and it's causing symptoms and they get better, I mean, I don't I mean, at least some of your symptoms got better. because of that. How do you know that? Is there a way to ever know? You, you don't. Oh. The only way you know for sure is if you remove your implants and then and and the capsules and their symptoms go away, then it's breast implant illness. Because um, most people have heard of something called fibromyalgia. That's a common, we call it like a, a wastebasket diagnosis because you rule out every every other diagnosis through like tests and you can't figure out what's wrong with somebody. So you get that diagnosis. So, so that's just you, like generalized nerve pain, right? Well, it's nerve pain, it's fatigue, it's muscle aches, it's hair loss, it's all the same stuff, very similar. And there's not a test you can do to test for fibromyalgia? Not, no. I mean, people will test what we call a sedimentation rate or an ESR or a CRP, which is just kind of like a general state of inflammation. And so sometimes they'll have higher levels of those numbers, but it doesn't mean that like that's the underlying cause. But the bottom line is it's like a it's just a dumpster, we call it dumpster diagnosis, like it falls in this big bucket of unknown. And so if you have, if you have breast implants and you have fibromyalgia, like you're probably going to have that when it, when, or at least some of those symptoms after the breast implants come out. So to answer your question, you know, not really, there's okay. not really a way to say for sure, if you have this, that removed your, these symptoms will get better unless it's that capsular contracture thing I mentioned. So we can fix capsular contracture. You take out your implant, you take out the capsule, and then you either don't do anything or you put a new implant in, and you generally can make that go away. I remember you showing Mina some implants in your office. And, you know, you can basically run a semi over them <laughs> and nothing happens. It's 2023 technology, and it's caught up greatly in the breast implant world, right? But there was a time when there was leaks and things like that. Is there something completely different that we're talking about? Right? So if like So if like you have old like old boobs. Yeah. You might be more prone to actually having breast implant illness compared to the newer models is what you're saying, right? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm asking. Great question. So lots of lots of stuff to unpack within that so we can take as take them kind of one at a time. The the old implants that used to be made of liquid silicone, um, they would rupture, um, depending on who made the implants, would rupture somewhere between 10 and 30% of the time uh, by 10 years. So, and so if that happens and you, yeah, and so if, and if, and if that happens and you have liquid silicone, then that liquid silicone either leaks within that capsule we talked about or could kind of leach outside the breast tissue and lead to like lumpiness or kind of disfiguration of your breast. You get lumps in your armpit, but that's that silicone itself is not necessarily evil, but it can lead to lots of unnecessary tests, biopsies. The thought was that at the time in the early 2000s, late, late nineties was that that silicone is what was dangerous and was hurting you. So they came off, silicone implants came off the market for a period of time, and then lots of testing happened, and then now they, they came back on again. But what the big change that happened when they came back on the market is we started making these, what we called gummy bear implants or cohesive silicone implants so that there was no liquid silicone anymore. It was just like a gummy bear inside the implant. So you said it would just dent. Dent or kind of change shape a little bit, um, which... We, yeah, so that we call that gel fracture. So the sh the gel within the implant fractures, which changes the shape. But there's no liquid to kind of leak out anymore, which is 
kind of true. There's three implant manufacturers. One of them has a truly cohesive silicone that truly doesn't leak. The other ones still get a little sticky over time on the outside. So you do get a little silicone, we call gel bleed through the shell of the implant, which can cause irritation, can cause inflammation of the shell. So listen, I'm not, it's important to always get information from your doctor. Like what are you, what is this doctor? What are his vested interests? And I hate to like blow everyone up on, on podcast, but there's three implant companies. There's a company called Allergan, which is the largest implant manufacturer. The second biggest is a company called Mentor, which is made by Johnson & Johnson. And the third is a company called Sientra, which is the smallest one. So I use Sientra implants, and, and that's I do that based on, and again, I'm not a paid consultant for Sientra. I was at one time. I'm not anymore. Um, but the, the Sientra implants have the best data for implants. And that's a general statement. But what I mean by that is they have the lowest rates of capsular contracture, so that scar tissue formation thing. They also have the lowest rupture rates. So the a time that the shell cracks and the gel kind of leaks out or whatever, the lowest rates of that happen with them. They also have the most truly cohesive gel within the shell of the implant. So if it were to crack, it will stay there as opposed to those other two brands, they still leak a little bit. They also, the other problems are, which we haven't touched on yet, but is anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is a type of lymphoma only related to implants they have the lowest rates of that as well. Um, I think in general, you should go with surgeons that do things on an evidence basis. And if you're choosing one company's implants, which truly does not have the best data supporting their implants, then that should make you pause for questions. A couple of the other questions that came up when I was listening to this for me was, the doctor was talking about nerve block and doing it when the chest is open and that prevents pain for like five to seven days. Is that something that, honestly, like, I don't even know if we did that or not. I can't remember anything that happened before last week. But is that something that's standard? Is it something that can be requested? Like, where does that fall into? Yeah, people have a lot of different kind of, again, marketing things. Breast augmentation is a very is a very um, commoditized surgery and field. So whatever you can come up with that makes you sound different, people will throw out there. So nerve blocks just basically mean you use numbing, numbing medicine, and there's a few of them that last longer than others. Um, and so how, how I do it, I just use the long acting numbing medicine on everybody. I don't charge them extra for it. I guarantee most people do because then it makes it seem like they're doing something extra special and different. If I do that, then I'm going to have some patients that have more pain than others and shame on me for letting patients have like make the choice to have more pain. If I feel like I'm going to do something that's going to help their result and make them better, I'm going to include that in their fee of their surgery and I'm going to do it on everybody. So yeah, I, when so you're looking right at the nerves that cause you pain after a breast augmentation when you but right before you put the implant in, they're staring at you. So we inject numbing medicine, right? So when they wake up, you're you're still going to have some tightness and discomfort, but you're not having um, you know, frank, sharp pain. It just feels like you have heaviness or tightness in your chest more than, um, you know, like you're dying from your, your implants hurting you. So, um, yeah, so there is long acting numbing medicine. It's, I wouldn't say it's routine for everybody. I think most people charge uh, an additional fee because the medicine itself costs between 250 and $400, depending on, um, which it seems nominal in the process. Yeah. yeah. And so if you're going to like a, a budget place, which a lot of people budget shop, then maybe they, you know, either don't offer it. Chances are they won't even offer it. But if they do, they're definitely going to charge you extra. And then you're going to end up paying the same as what a good breast augmentation is going to, you know, pay once they build in all the fees that are, it's kind of like Spirit Airlines, right? I mean, I end up 
when I, when I fly to Florida, I end up paying more for Spirit because they have a good flight and sometimes. And and then I would have just taken Delta, but it looks really cheap because you can. You know, yeah, I spent like $16 on the way home from South Carolina because the kids wanted chips and a drink. And I was like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. <laughs> Okay. So my other question then was about antibiotics because this doctor was saying he does not prescribe antibiotics post-surgery. He'll give antibiotics prior to the incision, but not afterwards and absolutely no drains and that you don't have to have drains because there's a technique where you can pretty much suture the skin down so it won't allow like a juice pocket to form. And by the way, this doctor performs <laughs> in the back alley of our house. <laughs> Um, so it depends what we're talking about. If we're talking about um, just primary breast augmentation, meaning like you have a normal breast, you're putting an implant in. I don't know of anyone who would put an, a drain in that setting. Um, I think if you're talking about um, removing an implant and not putting anything back in and you're not doing a mastopexy or anything, most reputable people are going to put a drain in unless it's a teeny tiny implant in a very healthy person. Um, then you wouldn't necessarily need a drain. But the majority of women in that situation have had their implants for years and have this big space. And if you don't put a drain in, you never have to put a drain in, but you have to set the person up for a very high chance of having either an infection or a fluid pocket um, accumulate where that implant was. And what's the downside of a drain? It's an annoyance for maybe a week. Um, to avoid multiple weeks and months of headaches. And I had three drains. So I had one that came out of each hip and one at the top of my butt crack. And a significant amount of fluid comes out of there for a period of time. And you don't take them out till it was less than like X fill in the blank amount. And just kind of like, you know, to dumb it down for people that are listening, my understanding is there's the innards of your body and then the skin and you're detaching the skin. And if you don't keep the skin nice and snug next to what's under it post-surgery, fluid can accumulate in there. Then your skin's not going to reattach properly. And then you got saggy skin. That was for your belly though, right? Um, so there's things called like, so kind of what you said. So you're separating all the layers off of your muscles. And so whether we're talking about breasts or bellies, it's kind of the same thing, except we don't create as much space like in a breast when we're putting an implant in for the first time. It's like it's kind of like a hand in glove fit. And so you're filling that space that you create with an implant. But if you take something out or like in a tummy tuck situation where you're lifting all the skin off and you're not really doing anything to close it down, then you have a space. We call it potential space where fluid can accumulate. So I, I don't the doctor you're talking about. Maybe they were talking about what we call quilting sutures, which quilting sutures are, you know, just like treating your body like a quilt. We put stitches in and sew everything back down to make that that space where fluid could accumulate minimum. But um, even with quilting sutures and progressive tension sutures, we call them, which is kind of like offloading things as we close them, you still have up to a 50% chance, and we're talking about abdomens now, not breasts, 50% chance of having a fluid collection. So, and now that's, again, a benign thing. It can be a benign thing. You have to come in, drain it. It's annoying. And if you're out of town, it's intolerable because you're not going to find a surgeon in your own town who manages another surgeon's complications. But it, to me, the trade-off for a drain for the marketability and ease of, you know, maybe a, a week or two without a drain, it's just not worth it. I'm happy. I tell all my patients that ask for them, I'm happy to do a drainless tummy tuck. But you have to be okay with a 50% chance of coming back weekly or twice weekly for seroma drains to, to get a drain. In breast, it's a little different if we're doing explant surgery. So to get back, we were talking about breast implant-associated illness. In those patients, they have this implant for a long time. They have a space where they're 
um, you know, that lives. If we're taking an implant out and frequently, I would say 50% of the time or more, we're doing mastopexies or a breast lift so that their breast doesn't look saggy when their implant comes out, we can close that space where the implant used to live down because we're reshaping the breast, their own breast tissue to fill up that space. But if we're just taking it out and doing nothing, which again, we try not to do unless someone says, hey, I don't care what my breast looks like. I just don't want them anymore. We're almost 100% of the time, I would say 100% of the time we're putting a drain in. There's no amount of quilting you can do in all the nooks and crannies of where your implant lived that's going to make that rate low enough to be tolerable, the rate of fluid collection. Okay. This is totally off the breast implant illness line of questioning, but have you ever done a penile implant? So great question. The so your your penile implant as you're thinking about it is done by urologists, plastic surgeons. I don't know. I have no idea what I'm thinking. I don't even know what one would be. So or what it would be, how it would function. You make there's something called semi-rigid or rigid penile prostheses. The only reason I know about it is because we sometimes do gen transgender surgeries, and and so when you there's a number of ways to do that. But there's also I see patients sometime for microphallus. So people that have penises that are a little smaller than they want them to be. And so sometimes they, um, they think that they can come to a plastic surgeon and get a prosthesis. Again, I don't do that surgery. And when I talk to my urology colleagues, they tell you that those things actually can make your penis a little bit smaller. So that's not really desirable. Okay. I was just really shocked when you said that you'd seen a lot of Brazilian butt lifts for men. So I felt like I had to ask. We're, we're, we're seeing more stuff now because we start, we've, we've been doing some, um, like weight loss kind of injections and kind of dietary modification things, which Steve and I have talked about offline a little bit. Okay. Well, we can probably get into more detail on the injections and things like that in the next episode we record, because I already have tons of questions and I should stop asking because they're not about this, but what else you got, babe? <laughs> well, I mean, he covered most of all my questions without me really even having to ask. So good job there, Dr. Colts. Uh, you're an amazing doctor. I think it's super interesting topic. Me and I were talking last night and I was like, you know what, with all the research that I've done, you know, what I find most interesting is that there just is no definitive answer. And it's really frustrating. Yeah, it's frustrating. Well, I'm sure it's frustrating for people having the symptoms even though, because I, I wasn't kidding when I said I listened to this and I'm convinced that I have breast implant illness because I have all these symptoms like more body odor and information and blah, blah, blah. And they could be related to 5 million different things. And so I know I don't actually probably have breast implant associated illness, but I think it would be very triggering for a lot of people. So, I mean, what would be your suggestion? I guess a good way to wrap it up is, you know, if you think you might be having this, if you think you have an implant, like what conversation, what line of questioning, who should you talk to so you can feel okay about where you are and not be just like super high anxiety? You know, I think more people than we appreciate get their implants done and non qualified hands. Obviously, a lot of people see very qualified surgeons and there's plenty of them out there. So number one, make sure you see your surgeon if there's any concern. I always tell people I want to see them yearly. Most people are so happy that they never come back. Um, you know, they come back maybe just to say hi, but they're, and they're coming back for other things, but, and they say they have no issues. But if you have any concern, it's, uh, it's very important. You see your surgeon who's hopefully qualified and they can work you up appropriately for any concerns. Um, that's really the most important thing is yearly visits or more frequent if there's necessary visits with your plastic surgeon. 
the recommendation for monitoring of breast implants is five, five to six years after your initial surgery, you get an MRI. And then every couple of years after that. And I'll tell you, most people don't do that, but it's especially important if you have any concerns. Um, and the first sign of any real problems is typically some volume change, like a little bit of fluid, a little bit of swelling. And that's really important to investigate because it's associated with real problems um, that is, are super rare, but not zero. And so it's important to be able to you know, pay attention to your body, see your surgeon, talk about these things and um, you know, deal with them in the right fashion because sometimes things are ignored and they're ignored too long and there's easy fixes for things. And again, noteworthy, the triple board certified, you said it, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean shit. It's fancy title. It's plastic and reconstructive surgery is what you're looking for. Not cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery is part of plastic and reconstructive surgery, but not vice versa. So you want board certified in plastic and reconstructive surgery, not board certified in cosmetic surgery. So not board certified in cosmetic surgery. That's not a, that's not a thing. So Pete and his whole team are based in various parts of Ohio, but you guys also do virtual consults. So if you're not in Ohio or don't want to travel, but you want a second opinion, you can check out PicoMD online. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a minute. We for virtual consults, we have a process. So we have a couple of patient care coordinators that will schedule time. Usually evenings and weekends, I uh, schedule those visits and virtually, and then in, in person, we do typically on Thursdays. Um, but we can make arrangements otherwise for out of town guests. All right. Well, thank you again, sir. If you guys want to follow, he posts every once in a while a picture, and I'm like, I think that's my butt. But he really posts amazing surgical photos, before and afters all kinds of good stuff on the Pico MD Instagram account. So give him a follow. And if you have any questions for the next time we record with Dr. Peter Colts or a question for me in general, there's a link in the show description to leave a message and I'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.